police armed response teams. A six-month trial of armed response teams, New Zealand's first full-time armed police, launched to respond more quickly to shooters in the wake of last year's Christchurch attacks. The operating environment has changed, particularly since March 15. They weren't wanted. Give them a gun, they're going to be more out of control. South Aucklanders are fearful a new police initiative aimed at making their community safer will achieve the exact opposite. I live in Manurewa. I have had the police up and down my street telling us and shouting at us to stay indoors. If we were to add any sort of weaponry, further weaponry into that situation, I would feel even more anxious about my community. There was no consultation. I don't think anyone in our community was consulted. I'm vice of the uh, district commander of the Manukau Police to at least talk to youth workers who've been involved with a lot of our young people just to get an understanding of what was going on in the community uh, and there was no two-way conversation at any stage. There were accusations of racism. Those trials were placed in the very communities, Māori Pacific and low-income communities, um, who were feeling already unsafe and targeted in the first place. So just driving around suburbia with guns, okay. And of course, like, the dude they pulled over was a brown dude. Like, it was quite like, okay, here we go. You see the videos from America, you hear the stuff from America, and you can't help but sort of draw parallels when you see stuff like that. And now they've been axed. The new police commissioner, Andrew Costa, has read the room in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests in the US, and he's dumped them. New Zealand's context is different, um, thankfully. We operating, operate a model of policing by consent, which means we aim to adopt a style of policing that the vast majority of people see as legitimate. And this whole issue of how police present and how we, um, you know, deploy with in terms of tactical options as part of that, you know, and it was clear from this trial that not everybody, uh, not a large enough proportion of the public supported this style of policing. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang, and today on The Detail, what went wrong with the armed response team? This week, as groups ramped up their campaigning, having seen vivid examples of police brutality in America, the idea was ditched without a shot being fired. We need a style of policing uh, that the community will support. That community didn't have a chance to get in behind the idea. It was only made public and most people only found out about it about a week before they started. And there are questions whether the teams were even needed in the first place. It's clear from the data that there just isn't that amount of crime to have full-time armed response teams involved in high-risk incidents for 20 hours a day. It didn't come as a complete surprise. Uh, The new commissioner, Andy Costa, had spoken on radio about a month ago and sowed some seeds that he was not entirely satisfied with it. I think his words were, I'm not entirely convinced that armed response teams are the right model of policing for New Zealand. That's Jordan Bond. He's an RNZ reporter who's been covering the armed response teams since they were first announced. This trial was started under his predecessor, Mike Bush. So the commissioner, Andy Costa, was, took over the head role at police about five months into the trial. It never seemed like he was entirely behind it, but he always said we will look at the evaluation and we will consult with communities and then make a decision. But the decision this week certainly didn't come as a complete surprise. He'd he'd sowed some seeds that he had some doubts about its modelling. And certainly by the time he came in, there was significant public opposition to this. So let's go 
back through the timeline then. So when it first was announced in October last year by Mike Bush, what was the actual purpose for having them, these armed response teams? The March 15 attacks were stated as one of the main drivers. Clearly that was a significant firearms incident. The purpose of these was to get armed offenders squads to firearm events more quickly. So to take you back, normally armed offenders squads have other roles within police. So they're doing other things. And if there's a call out, they need to return to the station, get their gear and then get on the road to where they need to go. So the purpose of this was to have them in a vehicle already with their gear and armed so they could get to events minutes quicker, which might be critical minutes. The second main driver, it wasn't as explicitly stated, was the number of firearms that police were encountering in their day-to-day policing, often when they weren't necessarily expecting it. Uh, So that wasn't as explicitly stated, but that was certainly one of them. I think police often felt unprepared or as though they didn't know quite what they were going to come up against when they entered someone's house, when they went to numerous family harm incidents that they go to, or even pulling over cars. Chris Carhill, the Police Association president, said at one point, you just don't know who has a gun until you see it. The response teams were kitted out with a pistol on their hip and a Bushmaster rifle in the car. The cars themselves were also different, big black SUVs. The guns were a significant step up from normal police gear. Every frontline police officer has a range of tactical options available to them, uh, ranging from um, their hands to handcuffs to a baton um, to a taser, which all frontline police officers are now equipped with. In certain situations, police officers can request that they are armed for a call-out. They need to seek approval from their superiors for that, but they are able to arm themselves if they do get that specific approval for a job where they feel it's warranted. Going back to the trial then, where was the trial conducted? It was to take place in the three districts that police said had the highest rate of firearm seizures. Uh, So that was Counties Monaco, Waikato and Canterbury. That speaks to the lack of knowledge about how many guns were in the community. We don't have a gun registry in New Zealand. You can have a firearms licence, but you don't have to register individual guns. So police don't know how many legal guns are in the country. No one does. They certainly don't know how many illegal guns are in the country. So they put these armed response teams in the areas that they felt there was most likely to be firearm incidents based on the data that they had. So it was to take place over six months with a limited number of armed response teams on the ground deployed, I think, for about 18 or 20 hours a day in two sort of shifts. They were to be full-time, on the road, and ready to respond, in Commissioner Mike Bush's words, to critical or high-risk incidents. That was how it was pitched in the first place. Yeah, I see from their release they said that For the trial, they would be routinely armed, equipped, mobile and ready to support our front line with any events or incidents that require enhanced tactical capabilities. Elsewhere, they said that, you know, they'll be focused to responding to events where there is a significant risk posed to the public or staff. Was that how it played out in reality? That was certainly the impression that people got from that announcement, that these armed response teams would not be used for frontline policing, that they would be called to high-risk situations if frontline officers felt they needed support or if there was a call for something which involved serious crime, particularly firearm crime. Very quickly, that 
started to unravel um, about two weeks into the trial. I was sent a video of armed response teams having pulled over a person on the side of the road. Right. Um, it was in broad daylight. It was in a suburban Hamilton next to a dairy. It didn't look like there was any clear reason why an armed response team needed to respond to that. The officer there was leaning on the car. It looked quite casual, talking to the guy as though he'd just been pulled over going 60 and a 50, except he had a pistol on his hip. It also makes me think that they're out there just driving around the community checking plates like normal cop cars do, which is not assistance. That's literally doing what a cop car normally does, looking for people to pull over. I had no idea that that's what they were going to be doing. That's terrifying. So police responded to that by saying, yes, they are intended to be first and foremost for critical and high-risk incidents, but they will be involved in preventative policing as well, which is stopping crime before it's happened. And that is a broad range of things. So that is pulling cars over on the side of the road if they've run the number plate and something pops up. Um, That may be uh, speaking to someone who looks suspicious or is in a high crime area and doesn't look to be going about any legitimate business. Right, so that's very different from what was initially pitched. Yes. In police's first announcement and the press release, it did say preventative patrolling. But the emphasis was put on that these would be for high-risk incidents. I think people accepted that at the start. But then as the story developed and Official Information Act requests came back with data about what police were actually involved in, the majority being traffic stops, bail checks and family harm incidents, people quickly started to realise that these armed response teams were involved in fairly routine policing. Um, day-to-day stuff that normal officers would normally carry out. So that was one of the first problems with this armed response team trial. Can you run me through what were the other issues that cropped up? So there were a number of distinct issues which police had to contend with, either by not having made it explicit about what they were to be doing, such as preventative patrolling from the start, or which popped up later. Uh, which became issues for the community and and that police had to respond to. So there were three broad categories. One was the consultation with the communities affected. Two was the actual demand for armed police and what they were actually involved in. And third was the collection of data from each of these armed response team call-outs. Documents obtained by Checkpoint have revealed numerous issues and a serious lack of consultation before the launch of the police's armed response teams. Now, the police commissioner has admitted the police should have consulted earlier and more widely before starting its armed response team trial. The government, they weren't consulted about this. They were told that this would be happening. As an operational decision, the government didn't need to decide about this. This was a police decision. The second was the community groups that would most likely be affected, and the ethnic groups. Right. Data shows that Māori and Pacific communities have a far greater level of interaction with police at almost all levels, from speaking through to arrests through to imprisonment. They're involved in the judicial system a lot more. It became clear that Māori and Pacific Island groups had not been consulted adequately. In police documents, they had even noted that there was a lack of consultation with them. The second major group was consultation with the Muslim community. 
given that March 15 was used as justification for the introduction of these teams, a quality consultation with the Muslim community should have occurred. They said they weren't. This lack of consultation was noted by the Police Association President, Chris Carhill, who said it hamstrung police from the start, that they should have done better with this, uh, that the police should have consulted with all the stakeholders more thoroughly and more robustly than they did before the introduction of these teams. Another significant problem with the lack of consultation with Māori groups, which ended up going unresolved, was an urgent Waitangi Tribunal claim by Sir Kim Workman, Justice Advocate, and Julia Faiputi, who was on the government's Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Panel, who said because of the lack of consultation, the Crown had actually breached the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi in terms of its partnership with Māori and consultation, or even informing them that this was going ahead. The second major problem was the actual need for them. Clearly, as, as data showed, the vast majority of what these armed response teams were doing were regular routine policing. Uh, a really telling quote was after a story Chris Carhill from the Police Association, the Police Officers' Union, said... Well, they're certainly fully armed and have all the equipment to respond to those top-end things, but I don't think anyone would expect that they should just sit around doing nothing all day. That really changed how people viewed this. They recognised that even officers knew there wasn't going to be enough demand for this. And data, as it was released and reported, showed that there was not enough serious crime for these people to be occupied with that, thankfully. But that meant, because they had the tool there, they were to be sent out and they were looking for jobs and engaging in preventative policing. The third problem which arose quite late was the level of data collection. Police on armed response teams failed to record their call-outs properly on almost every occasion during the trial's first two months. For the armed response team's trial, they were asked to fill out these end-of-deployment forms on top of the regular reporting. As it turned out, in the first two months of the trial, just 17% of end-of-deployment forms ended up being filled out completely. Police had said to the leaders of each armed response team that these forms needed to be filled out for every single call of service, 100% of the time. This extra level of detail from these forms was to inform the evidence-based policing centre who were to evaluate the trial. Another problem with that was it wasn't randomised. Police were self-selecting which incidents to record, so that meant there were unknown gaps about what was not being reported. So why did the police not fill out the forms? It's hard to tell. The forms were available on police's mobile devices. There is a significant amount of paperwork police have to do for um, certain jobs, and that was noted in internal documents I've seen, that it may not be feasible for police to fill out a form for every traffic stop. It might take 30 seconds, there's nothing wrong. And then they might have to sit there and fill out a form when there is something else they need to get to, and that amount of administration might pile up and it just doesn't get done. So time pressure... Uh, was likely one of the reasons. And I know we're still waiting on on the full report of the effectiveness of the armed response trials, although the police commissioner has said that they won't be going ahead. But it seems to me that this process has been flawed from the start and it almost seems like it's been a waste of time. To be clear, the decision is driven primarily around 
feedback from the community about the style of policing that um, is acceptable in New Zealand. Um, it's not in any way to say that the armed response teams were a failure or we take nothing away from it. The Police Association President Chris Cahill said some of the negative aspects of the trial overshadowed the positive aspects. Uh, he noted, I think it was almost 200 firearm events that these teams went to when not a shot was fired. They were de-escalated successfully. However, it's hard to know the real success or lack of until we see a final report. How much do you think the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd um, overseas has affected the decision here in New Zealand for armed response teams? So the protests certainly energised and galvanised the opposition to these armed response teams. It's hard to know how much the police actually considered that, but the turnout of the number of people, it's hard to tell, estimates between two and 4,000 people at the march in Auckland a couple of weeks ago, and the number of letters police received. Andrew Costa said they had 4,000 letters about armed response teams in the last week alone. Certainly wouldn't have been ignored by the police. It may not have played a direct part, given they know there are differences in our style of policing, but it really gave opposition to that. And one of Andrew Costa's main reasons was that there was public opposition to this. So that certainly played into the decision. From the start, there was very vocal opposition to this. Can you talk to me about some of the response, even at the beginning, to the announcement of the armed response teams? Mm. There was certainly immediate worry from certain groups of people, most notably Māori and Pacific people. So the very first weekend after these teams were started, there was a protest in Monaco. About 60 people in South Auckland are protesting what they call the Americanization of our police. Uh, a number of people spoke there um, behind a big banner that said, End Armed Patrols Now. Uh, Emily Rakati from People Against Prisons, Aotearoa. Uh, Julia Faiputi spoke. It is an insult to tell us that it's for the safety of communities because of this white supremacist terrorist attack. Kylie Quince, um, the erudite Associate Professor of Law at AUT, spoke. Efeso Collins, the Auckland councillor for the Monaco Ward, spoke in opposition to this. And Marama Davidson, the Greens co-leader. So it was a very strong group of opposition from the start of influential people who were calling for police to end this immediately. That only picked up steam with various events and news stories that came out, but they really led the charge, a group of people against it, from the very beginning. Was there a lot of protest that, once again, the police were coming into Māori and Pacifica communities who are already, like as you say, vulnerable to the police? Absolutely. There was a significant amount of worry that that would only escalate and would negatively impact and disproportionately impact Māori and Pacific communities. So given this was a trial and there were three districts involved, the police said that these districts were chosen because they had the highest number of gun seizures and surrenders. They said it was purely a data decision. However, people noted very quickly that counties Monaco and Waikato particularly had a higher proportion of Māori and Pacific Island communities. They were worried about police coming into their communities and certainly once stories came out that they were 
pulling people over on the side of the road, that definitely escalated the fear that these communities would again be disproportionately negatively affected by police. So what happens now? In the short term, I imagine police will release the documents they had reviewing this. Andy Costa said they were only preliminary findings. They hadn't even got to a final report. They should be released. Some of it will be redacted. If they're not proactively released, they'll come out through the Official Information Act. Further out than that, I think police would be very careful if and when the next time they propose to increase their level of access to firearms. Andy Costa said while he's commissioner, armed response teams will not return. It will certainly put a moratorium on any additional arming of the police. The government has kept relatively clear of this. They've continually said this is an operational decision. That has been debated by people, whether the arming of police for no specific job or threat is indeed operational and whether it actually may fall under routine, which then becomes a political government decision. Right. But the government have kept clear of this, but they've certainly noted their dissatisfaction with how this trial's been. And while Andrew Costa has put out this particular policing fire, he may have just started another one by floating the idea of using sponge bullets, the same type of projectiles being fired by cops in US demonstrations. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to RNZ's Jordan Bond. Mā te wā.